This editorially independent podcast is supported by Visit Flanders. The entire country is a, a battlefield and has been, you know, through the ages. So most of my tours incorporate some kind of history, especially war history, uh, whether it be Waterloo, uh, World War One, or World War Two. I'm Brendan Kearney, and you're listening to the Belgian Smack Podcast. called Belgian Beer Me Tours, which specialise in fun, smart and affordable beer tours of Belgium from all around the world. More than 30% of his travellers are returning customers. Now, there are few people in Belgian beer who don't know Stu. He turns up at beer festivals all around the country and at all times of the year, as well as at breweries both large and small, no matter how remote or off the beaten path they may be. Sometimes he's with a tour group, but often he's on his own. He's incredibly well connected to those in the industry and in the years he's been giving tours, he's built up a strong connection to hundreds of brewers, cafe owners, festival organizers, and media personalities. The reason he's so well known and so well liked is because he takes a genuine interest in those he meets and he takes the time over years to establish meaningful connections with people. Stu is also a keen student of history and he's discovered on his tours that it's impossible to separate the history of Belgium and particularly stories of war from the country's world-renowned beer culture. Both are inextricably linked and each offers an insight into the other. So I wanted to ask Stu how visitors on his tours react to the stories of such devastation and suffering which surround war history when they have just travelled to discover and enjoy a beer. So here we go, this is a conversation in three parts. The first part is called The Comedian. Well, in a typical year, I offer around 20 departures in a, in a non-pandemic year. And the tours range between six and 10 days long. And therefore, people from all over the world, although they tend to be mostly Americans, Canadians, and Australians. Like how long have you been doing this? About 13 years now. So tell me a little bit about some of the tours that you give. Some of the tours are 
have a theme to them, like Trappist tour, where we visit the six Trappist abbeys in Belgium and two in Netherlands. Some are based around festivals, like the Zitos Festival or the Kirstbeer Festival. Uh, I have a farmhouse ale tour. I have a back roads of Belgium tour that goes to some places that most visitors don't go to. I mean, you actually weren't always doing the beer tours. You've been doing them for quite some time, but you originally were a comedian. That's right. I was in stand-up comedy for um, a couple decades. So, you know, two interesting careers, uh, professional stand-up comedian and professional beer tour provider in Belgium and other countries. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, your name is Stu Stewart. Is your real name Stuart Stewart? No, my uh, my legal name is Ford Lee Stewart III. But when I was growing up as a child, uh, everybody in my family called me Stu to avoid confusion with the other two Fords. And so uh, it's a name that has been with me my whole life. And when I was doing comedy, I used it as a stage name too. And uh, so while... Uh, some people know me as Ford through official documents and different points in my life where they knew me as Ford because, like, when I was away at college and stuff, most people know me as Stu, but it's it's no secret. And, it, and I and if if somebody walked in and said, "Hey, Ford," I would turn around and look. I mean, you you, you know, you, you mentioned comedy there, um, and you mentioned college. You, you studied journalism in college. Yeah, I have a degree from the University of Montana, Missoula. So, did did you have any aspirations to become a journalist? Um, how can I answer that? Um, I I did, but just different um, job and career opportunities came along and took me down different roads. But I will say that I've always used what I learned in journalism school as far as writing and producing text for whatever I'm doing, whether it was comedy or promoting beer tours and producing them. So um, it's all good information. So how, do, how does the I, comedy opportunity present itself after your degree in journalism? Well, I started doing it as a hobby. <laughs> I went down to the open mic and put together five minutes of material and built it into a 30-minute act, and then at that point I started getting paid. It was like a second income, and then it turned into a main income, and I did that for a couple of decades. Yeah. And did that involve a lot of travel? Yeah, because yeah, you know, all over the U.S. and Canada. You're originally from Rochester, Michigan. Right. But you studied in Montana, in University of Montana, in, in Missoula. Yeah, but then you d- also like spent a lot of time in Seattle and LA doing comedy, right? I did. So I've lived a number of different places in the U.S. So, so I, I, grew, I grew up in southeastern Michigan. My dad retired from Pontiac Motors, and then we moved to Montana. I finished high school there, Anaconda, Montana. Then I went to the University of Montana, Missoula, for four years. And then I graduated from there, and I moved to Illinois for two years. I lived in Champaign, Illinois, and I worked for my national college fraternity as a leadership consultant, and that was a job where I traveled and visited college campuses. And then I moved to Seattle 
and I was in commercial real estate for a little bit, and I hated that, and I quit that, and then I got a job in public relations and marketing for the unlimited hydroplane racing sport, which was based in Seattle, and I did that for about, I think, about three years, and it was during that time I was doing stand-up comedy on the side, and... Uh, and, and then, transitioned into comedy. So, yeah. so like, are you doing kind of, you know, situational comedy, or is it like you know punchy one-liners, or what was your style? What kind of comedy was I doing? Mm-hmm. Uh, mediocre. <laughs> <laughs> now it was it was general observational, a lot about me and growing up. You know, you spend a lot of your time doing shows and bars and nightclubs too. Is, so. is that is that where you come across beer, or are you kind of already interested in beer at that time? I've been interested in beer since I was a child. I started collecting beer cans probably back in, I don't know, third or fourth grade. So I've always been intrigued by the imagery of beer and the romantic imagery that surrounded, especially the advertising of it in, a, in the United States. And uh, so I still collect beer cans a little bit, I, I still collect beer signs. In fact, I was just at a show yesterday in Tucson, Arizona for some collectors. Um, so I've had this interest in beer. And then, of course, when I got old enough to drink beer, I liked beer and became an enthusiast. And, yeah. and when did Belgium kind of cross your your path? You know, when did you sort of say, oh, the, there's beer from Belgium, which is different to beer from America? This would have been in the late 80s. I was living in Seattle. And it was when craft beer was just really starting to come on in the Seattle area. And I had a girlfriend who knew about Chimay Red Label. And uh, so she turned me on to it. And I'd never had anything like it before. You know, it has the Belgian yeast that at the time just wasn't found in the United States. It was so different. And then I just kept buying more Belgian beers and trying them and so, uh, learning on my own. How do you transition yeah. from enjoying a Shime Red label and doing stand-up comedy in Seattle to running tours, you know, 20 tours a year in different parts of Belgium, visiting breweries all the time? Well, in 2004, I took a beer tour run by Mike Saxton from beertrips.com out of Missoula. And... I went to Belgium and I fell in love with the country. And then I came back and I started a Belgian beer appreciation class called Belgian Beer Me through the Experimental College at the University of Washington. And I did that for a while. And then uh, people said, well, you know so much about Belgian beer and Belgium, you should lead tours. And so uh, I did, that's what I started doing. I was going back to Belgium on my own after I had done that initial visit in 2004. And so then I started thinking about kind of a logical progression of events and themes and efficient use of time and what people would want to know if they came to Belgium. And so I built tours that were kind of based on my personal interests and likes, for example, history. I'm a big student of history. Mm -hmm. And I designed tours to go to places that I would want to go if I'd never been to Belgium or if I wanted to learn more about it.
second part of this conversation is called The Last Post. When we're over in the Ardennes, we go to Henri Chappelle, U.S. Military Cemetery. Mm-hmm. I, I believe it's the second largest U.S. military cemetery in Europe. And uh, that's quite a moving experience. Well, we also go to uh, Commonwealth cemeteries, too, like Passchendaele and the museum at Passchendaele and in Flanders Museum in Ypres. And um, there's another museum called uh, Plugstreet, Plugstraat. Plugstreet. You know that one? Yeah, Plugstreet, yeah. Uh, that's... I think one of the best museums to go to because they have a film in the beginning that's about 10 minutes long that explains very clearly and concisely how World War I happened. And that element of the story is often missing in museums. You've got to kind of piece it together, but they just spell it out for you in black and white. All these different things happened, and then boom. Yeah, it's great. And I mean, the, the visitors are, are obviously pr- primarily, you know, traveling with you to experience like beer culture, bars, breweries, you know, but they, they maybe they also want to find out a little bit more about the place that, you know, this beer has come from. So when they do visit these museums or, or cemeteries and they're kind of presented with the, that harsh reality of, you know, the, the devastation that happened, how, how do you square that on a, like a holiday? How do you... How do they digest that experience when they're there to drink a few beers with with people? I think it's important for people to know the history of the country to better appreciate the beer and to appreciate the people, to understand how they are like they are and, and why they are like they are. And, you know, Belgian beer is because the way it is because of a number of factors. History is one of them, Uh, geography, uh, technology, uh, and also human spirit and resilience. And the Belgian people, they're resilient. Yeah. And I mean, you know, in in those areas where you have um, cemeteries and graveyards, there's also some, you know, quite unique breweries so you know when you're in the west hook you can go to passandala and you can go to you know um some of the other war museums and then you can just pop into places like the dollar brauers in Essen or kazamatten in Ypres mm-hmm. or the blucker in boperinge mm-hmm. or you know or um st bernardus in watu you know you have such um like diversity and personality in the breweries that, that surround you know that that cemetery and they all speak to the point that you made about resilience which is like they've all you know found their way through various challenges in 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 establishing the brewery so do you take the people to some of these places yeah Uh, another one that comes to mind that i was at just recently uh again for the first time in years is uh deca but it's it's a very it's a largely unknown brewery i think outside of out of even the region yeah and they're making some really great beers there and they've done a lot of improvements since I was there maybe 
more than 10 years ago. Um, very impressive. The other thing about DACA is that they kind of were a, a playground f for a lot of um, people who would go on to have breweries in Belgium, where they learnt, you know, their trade and tried out a lot of the recipes. People like Strausse Brauers in, yeah. uh, in, in um, Oostvleteren. And even I think Alvina was there for, for, for a while. So they have had an impact in on the sort of the continuing um, culture, you know, in, in that region and in Belgium. As you know, every year there's thousands of tons of unexploded, unexploded ordinances dug up in the farmer's fields, in construction sites all throughout West Flanders. And I never really realized how much of it was being turned up every year until I was at West Fleetern one time at uh, Inde Verde and there was a group of soldiers eating there and I got talking with them and they were the special detachment from the Belgian army that's assigned to uh, recovering all these yeah, they're, bombs. Yeah, they're, they're, they're based in Pulcapella, yeah, which is oh, okay. over there. Yeah, that's the, that's the unit, the, the, um, yeah, the explosive unit. And... Uh, they were telling me how many thousands of uh, tons of the stuff surfaces and how frequently, and I didn't realize it was that much and that often. And I asked him, I said, so like when a farmer sees something, does he just stop what he's doing and call you? And they said, well, it depends what it is. If it's something that they've seen before, sometimes they'll just pick it up and move it off to the side and then call us. And if it's something they're not comfortable with, then they just go around it. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, but I can't. I can't imagine just moving it out of the way. You know, I I, uh, I went out to visit that unit in Pulcapella once, and uh, I was yeah. also surprised that they told me that the farmers do lift lift the pieces, the, the shells, uh, and put them on the side of the road, and then call for collection. And I was really shocked because I was like, if I see something like that, I'm you know I'm immediately calling and stepping back you know? know but it just it also shows you how common it is for these farmers to find these you know these old shells it's just happening all the time and they're just like yeah I, if i have to call every time immediately I'll, i won't get any work done <laughs> yeah that's what they that's what these guys told me too yeah it's fascinating uh the other big takeaway with war history for Americans especially visit is going to the Menin Gate and seeing all those tens of thousands of names inscribed on the Menin Gate and experiencing the last post ceremony. And, you know, at first they just think, oh, these are uh, soldiers who died in the war. But it's more than that. As you know, these are soldiers for whom there are no known graves. Well, well like for someone that has, has never yeah. experienced or doesn't know what the last post is, can you kind of explain that? Yeah. Every night at 8 p.m., they have a ceremony at the Menin Gate where they rope off the road. They have a bugle corps that comes in and they, uh, they, they do a bugle call. I think the actual name of the call is Last Post. It is. I think it's, that's it's, how it's, they, it's the Last Post bugle call and it's performed by the... The Association of the Last Post, that's, the, that's their name. And it, it's very haunting, it's very moving. Uh, if you've never heard it before, uh, 
it does move you. you. You wouldn't even have to know what this ceremony was about, and it would move you. But it, uh, going in, knowing what it's about, it's uh, there's never there's not a dry eye in the house. And I have seen uh, this ceremony. I bet I've seen it ten times. And while it's typically a short ceremony, ten minutes, fifteen minutes, I've seen it take on uh, uh, different forms. For example. Um, I remember sometimes they'll have a school choir who comes in and sings. Sometimes, uh, one time I was there and they had the NATO commander from Australia there with his uniform on and the the uh, Australian hat with one side pinned up, you know, like a cowboy hat with one side pinned up, and he spoke and laid a special wreath. Another time there was some special uh, family members there who spoke and laid a wreath. And so you never know exactly what you're going to see. It's It's... Almost never exactly the same twice. Have, have you been there with groups? Yeah. And what yeah. can can you see how people are reacting as you're watching? Yeah. They they first of all they want to get there early so they get right on the front row. I I've been there when I bet you there's been 500 people there, and I've also been there like during the pandemic when there's almost nobody from the UK there, which typically is who makes up most of the audience, and. I think there might have been a hundred or less people. I've never seen it so uh, 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 such small attendance as during the pandemic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I've been there a few times too, and sometimes it's been after a day of maybe visiting some of the cemeteries or or trying to find out a little bit more about the history or talking to some people. And you know, without fail, it always um, strikes a real chord with me, even if you go in like you said, knowing everything and sort of hardened as, as much as you can. It's just incredibly touching. And I think a part of that is the fact that it's, it is quite understated. Like it's a very simple bugle call. It's, um, you know, it's, it's, there's no over you know, over sentimentalizing of it. It's just really just this bugle call with this incredible acoustic, all the names on the wall and people just there, in silence and mm-hmm. you have this moment to kind of reflect and um, I don't know, I just find it so touching. It's, it's hard not to be touched by that and to think about like just the futility of, of what happened and, um, you know, to, to think about your own, you know, how lucky you are, you are yourself or people that maybe, you, you, you know, connected to your own family. It's just, it's a, it's a, a very unique event. It is. Um, and I'm amazed that this has been going on, I think, since sometime in the mid to late 1920s. Yeah, um, every, every, every single night at 8 o'clock. Yeah, with a few exceptions, like during World War II, it was suspended. Um, but, uh, and I, to my, uh, if I understand correctly, in World War II, the Germans didn't bother the men in gate because it was considered bad luck to... Uh, mess with any kind of a war monuments. Have you heard that before? I haven't, but it, it, it makes sense, I think. Yeah. I, the thing is as well, in Ypres, you know, people do, you know, spend the, the, their days around the city, you know, visiting places, and then they go to the Men and Gate at 8 o'clock for the last post. It, it also means that the restaurants and cafes in Ypres um, 
all have it's hard to get reservations at like 8 15 8 20 8 30 because everyone wants to go immediately after the last post and they all reserve beforehand so they can go and have their dinner at like a later mm-hmm. dinner uh, we try to eat before then otherwise my people are too hungry but then you have to then you have to rush your dinner and, and run across you, it you, at, you do you do and the restaurants are all used to this so when we go in we'll say okay we've we'll only go got this post. long for this meal because we're going to last post and they're, they're so used to doing this that they just they understand everyone's working towards that uh, deadline to get in position for last post so something that's really common in the Ardennes especially are something that's common is how the survivors of that war, the Belgians who are still alive, how they, uh, how they look at and respect Americans. They are forever grateful for the liberators, the Patton's forces who came through and liberated these small towns and villages, and they've never forgotten it. And in our dens, when you go through these towns, Almost all of them have an American flag flying, a piece of armament, whether it be a, a tank or a jeep or a, a cannon. And there's a memorial and a plaque. And they, they've not forgotten. And they've maintained these memorials. And here's the story I'm leading up to. On more than one occasion, I have been in a small tavern or beer cafe in the Ardennes where some old guy sends over a beer and the waitress says, this is from the gentleman at the bar, and this is for your fathers and your grandfathers and your uncles and what they did here. Oh, my God, that is just so touching. Yeah. And, like, you know, that that guy or the, these people that have sent the beer over obviously have had, s- like, serious personal history, you know, yeah. with, with Americans helping helping them and their families. Yeah, and in one case, I was driving through the village of Manhay. Do you know where that is? Mm-hmm. Yes. There, there was a, a famous battle that took place there. I think it took place over a course of a couple of days. It was a battle within the Battle of the Bulge because it's a real, it's a major crossroads in that part of the Ardennes. And so I was driving through there. There's a little tavern right on the corner of the main intersection. And I saw a U.S. Army Jeep parked out front in mint condition. And so I turned around and I went back. I, I thought, I got I to gotta see who's driving this. So I walk in and it was place was crowded. And I'm thinking, well, it's going to be kind of hard to figure out who that Jeep belongs to. But I was wrong because <laughs> there was a guy standing at the bar in a, in a World War II uh, U.S. military uniform. And so he was really easy to pick out. And I went over and said hello and introduced myself. And I told him that his Jeep caught my attention. And then right away he could tell I was an American. And this is another example of a guy who bought me a beer. So immediately he wanted to buy me a beer. And his beer of choice was um, Gordon's Scotch Ale. Oh, okay. That was his beer. Okay. So he bought me one. But I soon discovered he didn't speak barely any English, mostly French. So where did he get but, where did he get the uniform? Where did he get the American World War II uniform? Well, it turns out he's part of a group of uh, 
enthusiasts and reenactors. Okay. So specifically where he got it, I don't know. But, you know, those guys have a network of uh, equipment and uniforms and swap meets and sales. And, of course, with the Internet now, you can buy just about anything. So uh, the bartender saw us kind of struggling there to communicate, and she translated for us. So we were able to have a conversation, which was really great. And so he was a nice man, and he said, uh, would you like to go to my house and, uh, you know, uh, see my house and some of my other stuff? And, you know, of course, as an American, our, we, we have a red flag that goes off, not, not going to some strange guy's house, you know. And, and as it turns out, I, I, I had to go someplace. I couldn't go anyways. But I said, you know, give me your name and number. I'll get a hold of you. And I did, uh, I think, a day or two later. And we set up a time to go. And um, here again, I found somebody to translate. And I went over to his house, and I met his wife, and I met his dogs. And um, he took me for a ride in the Jeep. He had his uniform on again. (laughs) And... We drove through the Ardennes countryside, like through Dubuis, and he lived over in that area and mm-hmm. around that region. We, and we were driving through the woods and the countryside, and with the exception of seeing a few modern cars go by us, it could have been 1944. Mm-hmm. It was very surreal looking over at him in his uniform, the trees, the fields, the fence posts. Uh, the creeks, the rivers, it was like going back in time. It was a really incredible experience. Open air Jeep, you know? Yeah, just, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I, I kept in touch with Andre, and I would stop and visit him and his wife when I would go through there when I didn't have a tour group. Have a, have a Gordon Scotch? Yeah, all the time. That was his beer, nothing else. Part three, dinner party. could have dinner and beers with any three people from Belgian beer, dead or alive, <laughs> who would it be and why? <laughs> well, for one thing, I think that it would be a lot more fun if they were alive than dead. <laughs> and, uh, oh, man, the three people. Um, well, I'll tell you what. Uh, what, one thing I like to do when I'm in between tours or before or after or when I 
have big chunks of time to visit Belgium on my own, I like to try to visit people who I've always wanted to meet who I've not met yet. And one of them was Rosa Merckx. And I just met her a few weeks ago um, through her son, Olaf. And uh, I've known of Rosa Merckx forever, and I've read lots about her. But it was really delightful to meet her. And I was just going to meet with her for you know, maybe 30 minutes or an hour. And I bet we spent three hours talking at her house. So Rosa is the uh, the former uh, brewmaster, head brewer at uh, Leafmonds. Right. And like, does she have good English? Yes. Okay, excellent. Excellent. So, so, yeah. So, yeah. so what sort of things did you talk about? Well, we talked, we covered everything. As you can imagine, we had three hours. So uh, I didn't record it. But uh, we had a lot of fun talking. You know, I, I already knew her story about how she worked there for like 64 years. and Or was it 46 years? 46 years, maybe. Yeah, that would have been too much. 46 years. She started out as a secretary and how the brewer had died suddenly. Yeah. And, yeah, but by this point, she had already been involved with the brewing process and then took over. And... You know, I was amazed at a couple things. For one thing, uh, she's 97 now, I believe. And she's all there mentally. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's very lucid. There's nothing aging about her mind. She's right there. And she can remember stuff that happened yesterday or uh, 50 years ago. And she, you can tell she's a really smart, well-rounded person. And she combined that with her natural beauty. She's a very attractive woman, even now at 97. And you can imagine how she was when she was younger, too. But she combined brains and beauty and some luck and happenstance into an amazing career. And a very influential and, career as well. Yeah. And she's just, even if she hadn't been involved with the brewing hist history of Belgium, she's just a really... Uh, interesting, uh, fun, uh, engaging person to be around. Uh, okay, so, so I, I can I've, see why she's as successful as she is and well liked. Okay, so we've got yeah. we've got the table, the nice cutleries there. There's a couple of beautiful glasses, uh, a couple of nice bottles on the table. Rosa is sitting on one side, Stu's there. Who are the who's in the other two seats? <laughs> oh man, the clock is ticking on this one. Um. Uh, Francois de Heron. Uh, he was the former marketing public relations manager for Orval for 27 years. He, he retired maybe five years ago now. Really interesting man. Uh, a storied career at Orval. Uh, knows everybody in the brewing world. He knows the history of Orval uh, frontwards and backwards. His family... Uh, is actually the family that owned the property where the Brewing Abbey is now. Uh, at some point, it came into their hands after it was destroyed during the French Revolution, and it was one of his ancestors that gifted the land back to the Cistercian monks to build the abbey and the brewery back in the 1920s. Wow. And that really didn't have anything to do with him getting his job there, He's just a really smart guy and had applied for it way back when. 
But that combined with his family heritage and personal connection to that brewery, I'm sure, inspired him to want to do great things with it. When he retired, he said, I'm moving to my family's chateau north of here in Yardens. Please come visit me sometime. A few years went by, and I didn't. And then finally had time. I called him up. He said, yeah, come on down. And um, he told me where the house was. And uh, I said, well, you know, how do I get there? He says, well, it's just north of this town, and you'll head out of town, and you'll see it on the right. But what he didn't tell me was it's a full-blown castle, <laughs> you know. It's like a castle out of Disneyland. That's probably, that's and, probably uh, where you could have the dinner. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I spent a couple nights there, and we went four-wheeling in this Land Rover, and we sat up in a hunting stand and saw wild stag walk through wow. and wild boar, and we drank Orval, and we had dinner and hung out with his... I met his wife, and gave me a tour of the chateau and we've become good friends and I still stop in and see him there when I get a chance. That sounds fantastic. So he's, he's, a, he's another good example. Uh, another one would be uh, Mark Antoine Demise from Brasserie Brunau. He's a real self-made uh, guy and making some excellent beers and he has a good handle on brewing and he has a good handle on marketing and public relations and he took an existing brewery that was uh, not doing well and he completely turned it around and made it better. And he's become a good friend through the years too. And uh, he used to have a, a farm with his uh, then wife where they produced, still produce some of the barley that's used in that brewery. And it was fun to visit the, uh, the domain, the farm and uh, see where they lived and uh, the behind the scenes of the brewery and their relationship and get to meet some of their friends. And so we often go to visit Marc Antoine Demise at Brunel on the Farmhouse Hill tour. And uh, I've just enjoyed being friends with him and getting to know him well. I mean, that's, that's, um, it sounds like a really uh, pleasant evening of uh, fantastic conversation. And I, I think also reflects your interest in the history of Belgium and the history of Belgian beer because you've, you know, chosen people that have this kind of heritage behind them. So my last question is, do you love what you do? <laughs> I should have anticipated you were going to ask me that question. You know, just to be contrarian, I'd, I'd like to say that I don't, but I do. Um, uh, I'm fortunate in that I still do love what I'm doing. And um, people always ask me when I'm going to retire. And my answer is uh, never, because uh, I'm going to be working until I die. That uh, sounds like um, a good plan. And I wish you all the best with all the rest of your tours and everything you do. Stu Stewart, a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks to Mike Kearney, Dave Wallace and Epidemic Sound for the writing and recording of original music. Thanks to Visit Flanders for their support in producing this podcast. And thanks to all of you for listening. 
My name is Brendan Kearney. This has been the Belgian Smart Podcast. Until next time, love what you do.